It's that time again. That time is Tuesday. <laughs> it's <laughs> when, the magic hour. When we record uh, our podcast called the New Utah Podcast. And it'll come at you not live Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> not live Wednesday. <laughs> but it'll be uh, episode 157. But not in the reserve is what you mean to say. No reserves. Oh, I don't reserve shit. Not my language. I don't I don't edit stuff very well. <laughs> very well. <laughs> I mean, I do edit. I, f- I try to fix sound quality. Sometimes it doesn't work out well. It's not my fault. Um, Most of the time, the sound quality is pretty good. We've only had a few train wrecks. Uh, yeah. We won't talk about those either. So, um, anyway, uh, yeah, episode 157. We survived our three year anniversary. Woo-hoo. Jess still didn't bring me a crystal ball gag. Be right back. Oh, apparently oh, she did. did. All right, we'll just keep going. Well, we can't because Chris forgot to put his music on. Like, uh, we're so, it's just a disaster. The holiday yeah, just screwed us over. I'm fucking exhausted, man. So around around like two thirty today, uh, I'm sitting at my desk. One of my employees comes over and she goes, "You look totally exhausted. You should go home." <laughs> I'm like, oh, oh, that's not good. Um, it was a long weekend. Bree and I spent it in Las Vegas, Nevada. Uh, As opposed to Las Vegas, Paris? Las Vegas, France. How can I have Las Vegas inside of another city? That's weird. There are other Las Vegases out there. Are there? I'm sure there are. I'm looking it up. Google it. Look I'm that go- up. I'm going to look it up. Google that shit. Um, so anyway, yeah, we, we uh, drove down. Um, that was a nightmare driving down and driving back uh, in the traffic going down there. It's well, this insane. is the kickoff camping weekend oh, yeah. where God. everybody goes, starts to So many camping. fucking motorhomes everywhere and toy haulers and dipshits that don't know how to fucking drive with them. There and, people who got all their new toys but have no clue. Well, an idiot, th- this is what always kills me, right? Like, so I grew up in Wyoming. It's a two-lane highway mostly owned by trucks. Like, there's not a lot of, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> it's a plant. I'm so okay. going to kill that. Rub the leaves. You can't. What? Is it fake? Rub it and f- smell your fingers. <laughs> is it a fake plant? No, it's no. real. What do you mean I can't kill it? Have you seen how like well my plants do? They're t- Even outside. I think I'm doing well in my garden and my fucking cucumbers have all been eaten by something. That's not your fault, though. It smells like leather. No. It smells like crystal? Nope. What is it? It's nowhere near Oh, wait, wait, wait. Bree's got it. It's familiar, but now I can't. It's super familiar. Oh, it's like a We're all peanut rubbing plants or something. Here. It it's poison like, ivy. It smells like ha, ha. butt. It smells like butt. Uh, it took me a minute. I had to rub it a couple times. I'm be disappointed if I... Popcorn? Yep. Am yes, I smelling popcorn? You are. Woo-hoo. I knew it was familiar. I just couldn't. So uh, I saw these plants and they're called... Popcorn <laughs> cassia. Yes. And they can get up to 12 feet tall. <laughs> And they're just awesome. So the blooms will fall off, and they you don't have to trim them or anything. They just regenerate. Are they I good, thought, are they good outdoor plants? So they full, full sun? sun, but you oh. if you want to keep them, you have to bring them in in the wintertime. Like, don't plant it unless oh, gotcha. you put it in, like, a we nice could, pot. We could put it in our pot that doesn't have anything in it. It's a bad idea. <laughs> it's going to die. Don't You cannot be mad when this thing does not live in my house, Jess. I... I won't be mad. It was just too cool not to get right. you. We killed a so fucking happy. air plant. I did too. We all did. We mine, killed. Mine eventually died we killed too. the rubber plant. <laughs> we all did. Okay. And, and we were like, cool. we were methodical. It's got a like, pretty flower. Bree had an alarm set. I feel horrible because Melinda, Melinda 
She's so nice, and she gave yes, us yes, and plants. you warned her, and you warned her, so and, she knew, and it fucking died. So. You should take pictures of these to post so that our, our friends will know what we're talking about. Why are you bossing me? You could Please. take a picture and post it. Don't you know how to post? So nobody does apparently. <laughs> <laughs> I've done it before. Once. I can post to Facebook. I I've not, not done. I can't see our messages anymore when I click on them. It tells Twitter. me I don't have rights. What on mm-hmm. Facebook? Uh-huh. That's weird. I'll have to fix that. That is weird. I might have blocked you. No, <laughs> I don't really like you. I don't know. <laughs> so so we're in. It's happy anniversary. Thanks, That's Jessica. Thanks, Jessica. Thank Sorry, it's not leather or pistol. It's okay. It's popcorn. It's popcorn. Interestingly. Is it we poison? all know that I like popcorn. Hey, hey, Google. Google box it. Is that poisonous? To you, eat? I feel like no. why do you want to eat it? My fucking cat eats oh. every goddamn thing <laughs> on the planet, so I need What's to know. What's it called again? A popcorn cassia. Cassia? I think cassia sounds better. Popcorn plant. Popcorn. It looks really cool looking plant, though. No doubt about it. That is a fucking cool plant. It's uh, from Africa. <gasps> it does say it's sometimes called the peanut butter. So when I said it smelled like peanut butter, I think that we were both right. On the right track. That is very cool. Thank you, Jess. I like that. It is poisonous. Uh, to cats or just to humans? It says it's a number three poison uh, toxicity level. I'm reading more. <laughs> so why would they make a plant that smells like popcorn that will kill you? It seems fucking messed up. Why do fish look cute and then they <sighs> got spikes and hurt people? Oh my god, we saw we saw fucking crazy sharks at uh, the uh, aquarium at the Oh yeah, Bay. the one that you walk under the yeah. Well, that's a lot of aquariums, but the the sharks. It just are... says it will it will cause problems if ingested by humans or animals. Okay, so we need to. We need to figure that out. We can put it outside. Yeah. Except for in the winter. And then we'll have to figure out a place well, to put it. Well, we can, yeah. We'll just have to roll. It's on that, that thing is on a roll. It's on rollers. I know. I'm well aware. Um. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Sorry to throw things off. That's no, okay. No, it's fine. Thank That's you. a cool plant. I like it. Um. So, our uh, uh, um, Vegas trip um, was fun. We did stuff. Uh, Real Salt Lake won me a good chunk of change, uh, as did a couple other teams that I bet on uh, that I thought had... You told me to take a picture. Pati- I'm taking a picture. Well, yeah. That's okay. Well, you didn't have to stop talking while she took a picture. <laughs> well, she's putting it right... She's putting the, the image right in front of me, and so, like, it's I want to... I want to touch the phone that she's... <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, so... Th- I, I'm not going to bore everyone with the story. So we talk about Vegas because we're within driving distance of Vegas here in, in Utah. Some parts of Utah much closer than others. Like St. George is less than two hours from Vegas, which is really fun. Yeah. Um, uh, so it's easy to get down there, a lot easier than, than almost any other place but L.A. Um, but I wanted to talk about it because, you know, we took Lyft everywhere while we were down there because we didn't want to drive. Except uh, for when I fucking walked and got blisters. Um, other than, other than the one trip that we took, you know, way out on the outskirts of Vegas for really good sushi that wasn't on the strip. Uh, other than that, uh, we, we took Lyft pretty much everywhere. Uh, and one of our Lyft drivers is, we're taking a Lyft to, this is when we went to the Orleans. Uh, uh, yeah, that's right. You're right. So we're talking to him and I asked him, you know, where he's from cause he's got a thick accent and, and he says, shit that I don't really know and and I'm like yeah what country he's like um Iraq and he tells me the area of Iraq he's like but I 
I've been in LA for a long time. I thought he said he was born here. He was born in LA and he's, but he goes back there or something. I don't fucking know. But basically he continues to talk to us and tell us tell these us about stories. all of his dead relatives. His brother just died. He said his wife died in the last year. <laughs> he has a six year old kid who is apparently a genius and she, reads, he, 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 he's in a doctorate program for art history. Not the kid, but the no. guy. And, and the kids reading his doctorate level art history books and art theory books and understanding them six-year-old kid uh he homeschools the kid he knows because, seven languages yeah kid knows seven. now the seven language thing i i can find somewhat believable because if kids are exposed to that many languages right, around them age. they pick them up but uh the rest of it i just have a hard time believing <laughs> like they, it just some the shit was so far-fetched i'm just like at some point during the conversation i was just like okay this guy's so full of shit like he is just talking out his ass about everything. Yeah, but at least he was more interesting than the weird guy that we got in his car and he was playing whatever that weird He's ass playing some was. weird ass like Florida Georgia line style country. Uh-huh. Like How do you know what style that is? I don't even know what style that is. Because I pay attention to music. Anyway, it was just weird. It was weird. It was weird. Uh, anyway, that's, that's <laughs> one all. guy I got in the car and I was like, oh, I love the song. He's like, me too. And turned it up. <laughs> But that's it. That's it. Oh, I will say this too. Uh, the Orleans is a fun casino to gamble it is. at. I was talking to Kenneth about it, and that's where he stays because apparently that's really close to our offices. I guess we were really close to our which, Vegas offices. Which explains why Kenneth, the master of fucking not doing anything exciting, the, so he always takes their office in Las Vegas out to this shitty Mc, Irish McMullins. pub, McMullen's Pub, which is right on the corner by, yeah. by the Orleans. Orleans. I know where that is. Yeah. So we went in there and we're it's like... It's not a shitty pub. It's just it didn't do what we wanted it no, to no, do. We were it's mad. a shitty pub. It was like a smoke-filled <laughs> fucking pub. One side of it was a bar with a bunch of poker machines, like is in most dive bars in Vegas. The other side was like a gastro pub. But like when we went, they're like, oh, yeah, we'll turn it to soccer. And they never did. They just watched some fucking shitty preseason baseball game. So I'm never going back to that place. But anyway, it explains a lot why he takes them there because it's right next to the office. Well, it's right next to where he's staying. And and where he's staying so he can walk across the parking lot to it. Well, he runs. I mean, it's not like he doesn't like do exercise. He just, I don't know. No, but it doesn't make him not lazy. Just because you exercise doesn't make you lazy. I know. Um, So anyway, uh, on the strip at casinos, like the dealers were not fucking talkative they weren't conversational at all like the whole time but uh the orleans we had a lot of fun with the last guy though he was too busy mansplaining how to play 21 to me for me to enjoy it he was driving me crazy (laughs) like three dealers in we'd been there for like three hours at the same table and he starts to explain well because i just do what i want like that's why i play at low really low like i don't i don't Risk she doesn't subscribe to actual I don't blackjack. Split. I don't. I just. I just want to. I just sit there and play. Like it's not a thing. It's just what I like to do. I just super simple. I either have twenty one or I don't. Like it's not a big deal. But I always get at least one dealer who thinks that they have to totally explain the odds and the math. And I just want to say I don't like math. I don't really care what your odds are. I just. <laughs> If it feels like I should hit on 16, then I do. And if it doesn't, then I don't. But it bugs a lot of people who are, you know. Serious. Yeah. So playing at a low table like that was fine because it was just some other guy that didn't care. Chris, who doesn't care. And then some guy trying to learn who was trying to split tens. 
oh, I care, <laughs> but I won't say anything because I love her. <laughs> but it does drive me bonkers when people play incorrectly at tables. And at least- it's not incorrectly. If I win, it's fucking right. Did you win? Who plays? Who who played for just as long as you did and lost less money? Me. Excuse me. <laughs> did you guys win anything? Not at the blackjack tables. No. I won at the electronic blackjack table. I sat and played that for about two and a half hours, and I won like. 25 bucks i sat and played with 20 and came away 45 so about 25 yeah. bucks so hey now mostly uh we didn't really win much but we only uh, won because we bet on sports i got i got a lot of, a lot of a lot of sports wets wins so some good money on some bets this weekend cool. but uh that's enough about vegas i think jess what what's this you weren't going to talk about your scotch isn't that why you brought it down no i brought it down to show jeremy these people oh. don't need to know about it <laughs> <laughs> I brought it down specifically to or show whiskey Jeremy. or whatever it is. It's both. There's one Just of depends each. on there's a bourbon and at. a scotch. Well, I didn't remember what you got. Well, it also depends on actually how it's made, whether or not it's considered an American bourbon or a whiskey or a scotch or a no whiskey and dish. scotch are the same thing. Three um, years in a they, day, they write on the they handwrite all of this. This isn't printed. It's yeah, but there, I a, found a bottle that somebody had forgotten to write on. There's a printed label on the back. Well, though. I know, but the front of it is handwritten. Anyway, they are very cool. So, what's this? You said there's a new restaurant in Orem. I I'll consider it new because it opened in December. So, in restaurant world, that That's is new, really new. It's um, got another six months before total failure, <laughs> which I hope that it doesn't. So, um. I went to this photo shoot on Saturday and my cousin was like, hey, let's do lunch after because she went with me. And I was like, OK. And so instead of looking for something in Salt Lake, I was like, let's look for something in Utah County. And so I hopped on the on the Yelp and and uh, found this restaurant called True Religion and it's T.R.U. Religion. So this restaurant, besides having a spectacular menu, has taken all of the booths, all of the um, like paneling, any type of details, the bar, the chairs, the tables, all from Lamb's Grill when it closed it down. Oh, cool. Oh, so they bought all their shit in a liquidation. Yeah. And it is, It's so the whole theme is Art Deco. They have like a really old... Um, Do they have the, the, the nostalgic bar itself? It's like, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Is it the have, Lamb's Grill people? Um, I don't think so. Um, I would have probably fucking given up on it. At that I don't point think so. Um, like huge portions. The staff was awesome. The food was amazing. Probably some of the best bacon I've ever eaten. Um, what style food is it? Well, we had breakfast, so it was American breakfast <laughs> was, style. Yeah, it was phenomenal. They have an old at like right when you walk in, it's like an old cabinet from a Methodist church. But um, they also get back to the community. Um, which I thought was awesome, but it's beautiful and delicious. And I can't wait to go back and try more of the menu because I couldn't decide. You, you should try not breakfast. No, I love breakfast. Yeah, it's my but, favorite meal. <laughs> yeah, but not breakfast is a bigger tell of a restaurant. It's true. Well, they only used to be open um, till like 2.30 or 3 o'clock, but mm. they just extended their hours so on the weekends. They're open till 10 well, and during the week they're open till 8. You have to really fucking suck to not be able to do breakfast, right? Like breakfast is not a hard meal to nail down as a restaurant. Eh, had bad breakfast <laughs> at restaurants. I'm not saying it's impossible. <laughs> was amazing. But short and order it gave me, And it was easy. two meals. So, and he, the, wait, he wasn't our waiter, but two he, meals. 
Yeah, like, like took some home. Like yeah, like there was, and I hate leftovers. So I can't do leftover. Breakfast. I hate doing leftovers, cool. but I cooked it in a skillet, and it was delicious. So, uh, anyways, he had suggested a couple of items, and was like, like these are the ones I always suggest because you can split them, so one person can have half, the other person can have half. Um, but we didn't do that. I had an omelet. I wouldn't fucking share my food with anyone. <laughs> I was going to share that bacon, but I did. I shared it with my cousin's little boy. It was the only thing you would eat. We had a lot of good food in Vegas. We Okay, so I I lied. We're going to go back and tell one story. We had we went to the Tournament of Kings, and I thought Bree would not be down, but I've always kind of wanted to do that. I've always wanted never to do done it. it. No, I'd never done it before. And I'm like, hey, Bree, what do you think about this last week? And she's like, and I was like hey, oh, my God, that looks fun. really fun. I'm like... No, you're full. You're full of shit. You're just. And she's no, no. I'm serious. And it was a lot of fun. It was the food was not great, but it wasn't. Yeah, but it wasn't bad. Either. I wasn't I mean, expecting was, great food. We didn't go there for the food. No silverware. It was fun to eat like that, and it was fun. <laughs> the little kids next to us had like chicken nuggets and fries and stuff. They were funny. I've been a few times. It was cool. It's it was cool. fun. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. I would fucking totally do that. Don't we have a place like that around here somewhere? No. I swear to God we do. The only place that was similar was in New Jersey. No. That was part of... <laughs> no, I'm serious. I'm, no, I'm I'm serious. I think there's a place like... I'm going to have to look it up. I think there's a place like that in, in the Wasatch Front that, that does that sort of thing, like dinner theater type thing. I, I really you think Google there it. is. I'm going to. I know uh, there's places that do di- types of dinner theater, but there's none that I well, know. Oh, yeah, there's a like. stupid Desert Star Playhouse. Actually, I don't want to say it's stupid. Just. I actually really like the Desert Star Playhouse. There's one at, uh, what's it, the little village thing of 70. Gardner, Gardner Village. Village. Evermore is going to have one, too. They're building a restaurant. They've got a restaurant in there that does magic, I think. So a little different, but it's like it's it's a whole the whole not dinner. your kind of magic, Chris. Like, like like scarves magic, I guess. So pulling the the flower out, I don't know. Pulling the flower out, and it just keeps going and going and going. <laughs> pulling the flower out. <laughs> I'd write that down. So they have they, they do have that, but that's not the same as jousting. But yeah, so I've never been, but I've always wanted to. I thought the Inspire. sword. I thought the sword fighting was cooler than the jousting. Personally, cool takes a lot. Um, so yep. there is, a, oh, to answer your question, there is a, an arena like that, but it is on the Young Living family farm down in Mona, Utah. So they sword fight? That'd be cool. They do. Um, actually, Raven and, uh, Jen did their, um, costuming. Huh? So, Medieval but they times. don't, but they don't have, oh, that's a in, that's in food. California. Just, I mean, they have little like places you can buy food, but not like a meal a like medieval times does. But not like pulling a chicken, or I guess not chicken, a corner no game soup. apart with your hands. Yeah, no bread. Icky on the soup. I'd have to go to the uh, the Ren Fair. The Ren Fair would probably have it, right? Yes, Utah Ren Fair would have it. Uh, yeah, they do like a whole meal thing. That's probably what you're thinking about. Uh, medieval times has a bunch of places that are not in Utah. East Rutherford, New Jersey. I there's, don't even know if it's still open. There's one in Georgia, California, Texas, South Carolina, Ontario, Baltimore, Chicago, uh, Lindhurst, New Jersey. Orlando, it's next Florida. door to East Rutherford. Yeah. Um, so that was medieval times. <sighs> I swear to God there was one. Whatever. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> Now I'm just going to be disappointed the entire show. No, just go to the Utah Ren Fair one. It was really fun. It was cool. And I had a Cornish game in a long time, so. <laughs> uh, and it's been really wet up here. 
Very much so. Like nonstop rain, basically. So that was a nice change to, to get out there. And uh, now it's high school graduation. I thought that was last weekend. Uh, so Granite School District, which is the biggest school district in the, this valley, oh, theirs was last week. Ooh, la, la, la. Big school district. Big school district. So theirs was last week. So they had. A, so they're done. They're out. Jordan School District. Oh, that's right. Jordan's a different school district. Which is what we're in. Where are you fucking southeast? Is this week. You southeast? Southeasters. Yeah. I think we're in Jordan, aren't we? Oh, are man. We I totally forgot about graduations Granite. last week and drove through yeah, you guys are West Granite. Valley. <laughs> Granite, Granite covers the lion's share of the valley. Yeah. Well, I mean, Jordan, West Jordan's right there, and I would assume Jordan School District includes West Jordan schools. Ah, maybe. I don't know. I fucking know. But, but yeah, so that's this week. So I don't have high school kids. So Thursday's graduation. And when you did, they weren't in any district. Thursday's graduation, and then Friday's the last day for the other two. And then we are done for the summer. I mean, your babysitting days are back on, so you have to you have to have the kids home all the time. It's true, but where they're older, it's not like it used to be. Yeah. Back in the really day. To, you don't really have to pay attention to them anymore. Yeah, they're old enough now that... Hey, is your pool up? It's almost ready, but because of all the rain... We you haven't, haven't. You haven't so, put it up so, yet. So uh, th- this weekend, weather permitting. Uh, and just open it up and let the rain yeah, fill Yeah, let in. the rain fill it up. I want to get it up this weekend so that it can start warming up because it takes probably a week. It takes a couple weeks for it to actually get warm. In this weather. So, Do the kids jump in it when it's cold? Jonathan does. <laughs> Fucking crazy. Even when it's cold. I do. So, it. I don't we're care. We're filling it last year. We got the hose in there. You know how cold that is? Yeah. I don't All care. of his friends. I'd do it. Jumping in, playing in it. They love it. So. It's, it's worth the best. it. They love it. And you you did a nice, like, dig a hole and flatten it out this year. This year, so. yeah, because last year, within a few weeks, it was all wobbly. and the, the it was. So how deep how deep did you finally end up going? It's not that deep, but, man, there's so much dirt. Because my to look at my lawn, you think it's level. Oh, it's not level at all, dude. But one end is probably six to eight inches, and, and then the shallower end is probably two to three inches. I only wanted about two to three inches, but to get it level... Yeah. But that that is so much dirt. But that's cool because now it's a a proper surface for an above yeah. ground pool. So hopefully, hopefully it does better this year. So next year, backhoe, you're going to put it all the way in the ground so you can cover so my it. Neighbor, it no. My neighbor, right next door. Don't tell me he actually did that. He poked his head over the fence. He's like, "What are you doing?" And I told him that the, about the pool, and he's like, "Oh, we we think we're going to dig a hole for our trampoline." And I said, "Oh, really?" And I said, "Do you see all the dirt along the back of my fence line? And there's a lot of dirt." He's like, yeah, and I'm like, that's from taking those few inches out of that hole. I can only imagine what would happen if you dig deep. You actually for a dig trampoline. a hole, yeah. He, he, I think he changed Tra- his mind. Trampoline holes are still they were um, world shaking for me when we went on that. Just hike. last summer, I've never seen a fucking trampoline like a hole in the ground with a. Trampoline. You know what? You can associate with trampolines forever, Alaska, because that is when I had my Alaska idea. So. Trampoline holes equal Alaska. Huh. Who knew? We were walking along <laughs> there, and we were looking at all of those, and then suddenly I was like, I really want to go to Alaska. And that was it. That was it. The planning started. All righty, then. Uh, all right. Um, we got some events, Jess? Uh, sure. I have some events. It's uh, Pride. It's Pride. Pride Week. Um, which is awesome. Lots going on. City Weekly, Miss City Weekly pageant. It's the 10th anniversary. I tried to get Brie a rainbow dildo that was a sucker. She had none of it. In Vegas? Yeah. 
It was big, too. It was like a <laughs> fucking humongous, like, big, giant lollipop dick. You didn't want that? Well, some heft. Very, very, <laughs> very lifelike, other than the fact that it was rainbow-colored. Could have shared it at the office. That's all I have this week. Is <laughs> you guys want to lick? That's, but, but that's not... I mean, there's a lot of shit going on for Pride, so... Well, there is. Between the parade and... Miss City and Weekly. Miss City Weekly. It's on Thursday. And then they're... So they're not... If I remember correctly, they usually do like an event on Friday night, but they're not doing that this year. So it's just Saturday and Sunday. The parade's at 10 o'clock. Um, there's... Right, it's on Sunday, right? Uh, Saturday and Sunday. Or both, but, okay. Yeah. The, oh, sorry. Did you say the parade or the parade? The parade. Yeah, the parade's on Sunday. Sunday. Sorry. Um... And if you've never been, like, I fucking hate parades personally, but the Pride Parade here is amazing. We have one of the best Pride festivals have in the country. To Pride? To yeah, the Parade? Years ago. I walked in the parade. I yes. hate parades, generally speaking, though, so. It's fun. So that's at 10 o'clock on Sunday, but the festival um, is down at Washington Square. What did Kat say about taking pictures of the people in the parade? Did she ever respond to you? She did. I'll have to look. Okay. I was curious about but that, you're too. you're not supposed to? Or that you're supposed well, no, to? Well, no, she was just posting about pictures, pictures and so Jess was just asking No, it's her. actually a list. It's a list about if you're a straight ally and your behaviors right. at Pride festivals. Kind of like, a, like, don't go to the festival unless you, like, follow these rules if you're a straight person. Oh. Kind but of some thing. of the things she was posting about was, was pictures. And so Jess huh. was saying, is it okay to take pictures of the people walking in the parade? Yes. I, don't so I was I curious mean. about that. It's about being respectful, you know? Well, yeah, but... I, I think... But, I, I mean, like again, I don't want to, like, assume, but I would think it would be okay because they're actually out there on purpose, like, displaying themselves. It's not like they're just walking around on the street and something. Like, they're out there waving and stuff. And so just like you would take a picture of, like, the Pioneer Day Parade or St. Patrick's Day Parade feel like it's along those lines but i don't know i would take pictures it's just fine if you enjoy what you're seeing take pictures don't fucking take pictures to post them and be like oh my god look at this freak because that's fucked up and that doesn't matter if you're taking a picture or you're just saying that if you're out there to say that don't fucking go stay in your fucking home you asshole but if you're out there just taking pictures of things that you're enjoying it and fucking take pictures and there's nothing wrong with that Okay, so I'm going to skip to next week since Pride is basically all of this weekend. So next week is a big weekend. There's a lot going on during the weekend of the 6th to the 9th. So the Sentimental Journey is in town. It's a B-17, kind of in town. It's in Heber. Anyways, they're doing commemorative flights for uh, 75 years of (laughs) (laughs) D-Day. The flights are very expensive, but you can go up and watch the plane fly around. It's still pretty incredible. And then the 7th is the Liberty Park Farmer's Market Opening Day. The 8th is the Downtown Farmer's Market Opening Day. The 9th is Park Silly Opening Day. And then also that weekend, the 7th to the 9th is the Scottish Festival at the fairgrounds. I had to think about that for a second. And this year they are going to have their very first uh, whiskey garden. Ever. Excellent. I know. It's awesome. And then also Ogden Uncon is next weekend. So, so if you don't have your tickets for that. This morning on the radio, them. they were interviewing Russ. And I just happened to have the radio on 
but they were interviewing him for Uncon, and he was talking. But he was talking about the creature stuff. His his creature. His, so anyway, stuff. I was like, oh, that's cool. Because nice. yeah, if, if you guys want to listen to him, go listen to one of our shows some time back. We talked to him for a while. Or you can follow Ogden Uncon because they always do like live videos, and they're really funny. Yeah, most of the time. And all the farmer's market's pretty much open, right? Yes. <laughs> Sorry, I was trying to yawn <laughs> off mic, and it got, like, dead silent. Well, well that's because it's 6.30, and... I thought I that you that were just... Stuff. I thought that you were stopping <laughs> to pause. pause for the no, I was for trying, interview. I was trying to be So I was being and quiet, and I was like, oh, okay, he's decided to pause here for no. our interview, and then, no. you didn't, then you started talking again. But yeah, like, all the farmer's markets open. Not all of them, but most of them start to open, right? So the main farmer's market opens this, that weekend, the 8th? Yes. The 8th? Or is it the 7th? I don't remember what day Saturday is. 8th is the downtown, and 7th is the Liberty Park. And Park Silly starts off, right? Yeah, I just said all that. Did you say all that? All of it. How did I miss that? <laughs> Was I like between Pride and Uncon? Yeah. I have no idea, but she has said all all of those. I things. was legit paying attention, <laughs> but I think sixth, seventh, eighth, all of that stuff. She she talked about take you for a moment there and then put you back. This is not a good day for me. <laughs> I'm sorry. I fuck. I I was like involved in like the thought of pride and the Scottish festival with whiskey, and I'm like, okay, is she going to talk about the farmers markets? And then I had to yawn, and everyone got quiet, and then I repeated everything you just said. Awesome. God, I'm awesome, a f- fucking miserable <laughs> human being over here. <laughs> With us this evening, we have uh, Saida Dahir. Did I say it right? Yes, you I did. I not mess that up. That's like that's like a high five across the table moment for you. <laughs> oh, my yeah. gosh. For those of you that don't know, Brie gave me a high five this weekend. While we were in I told you you're not allowed to talk about that. Oh, that did not happen. There was no high five. There was nothing. There was no high fives. Nothing to to see here, folks. Yeah. Anyone that knows Brie will crucify her for giving someone a high five. I don't do high fives. I don't do knuckles. I'd rather shake your hand or give you a hug. Those other two things are just weird. I don't get why you're hitting people. So uh, Uh for for those of you that don't know, um, Saida is is not necessarily a high five specialist, but uh, (laughs) (laughs) you don't know that you haven't asked her. Yeah. She, she is. You are, Saida, a bit of an activist, correct? Yes, I am. And a poet? Mm, I try to be. <laughs> so, um, Saida, um, part of why we wanted to talk to Saida, we've been trying to get together with Saida for a long time, right, Jess? Yes. Like, what, a year-ish? Things happen in time. It's all good. um but uh she was uh you're you're a founding member of the salt lake city march for our lives chapter right yes i am and what was kind of your drive to to start that um i remember the day i found out about the the shooting on february um and i was devastated and i knew that it was going to continue to happen and I was sick and tired of it. So when I found out that there was going to be a March for Alive um, in Salt Lake City, I told them that I wanted to speak, read a poem, and help them with the following events and anything else that they needed because I wanted change to happen. That's a pretty big step because what were you, 16, 17 then? I was 17 years old then. 
That's a that's a bold move for a 17-year-old. I don't think either of my kids would have been able to do that at 17. What what do you think gave you the the confidence to be able to do something like that? Cuz it's not like it was a small like 20 people in a classroom you were delivering this to. It was it was a rather large group. Yeah, so I have been doing um, activism, doing public speaking since I was like 12 years old. So I've really um, gathered experience with different crowds and with with huge amounts of people, with one person, with a handful. So um, when I found out that that there was going to be March, it was like my second nature to want to be a part of it because I'd been doing things with Black Lives Matter Utah and a bunch of different rallies with them um, on police police brutality. Um, I did marches with the refugees ban and um, DACA recipients. So I was very into that kind of stuff. So it was just something that I could add on. Well, and a lot of this stuff is is pretty close to home, I would think, for you, right? Because you're, a, you're an immigrant yourself, correct? Yeah. So my friends, they call me the walking stereotype. It's <laughs> <laughs> Because I have so many different marginalized groups that I'm a part of, you know, I'm a woman, I'm black, I'm Muslim, I'm a refugee. There's just a lot of things that society doesn't really see as the norm or the the thing that should be valued. And I have all of them. So it's like really hard. But that's why I do the things that I do, because I feel that I can identify with all the groups that are getting the backlash. So you came over from Somalia when you were just just a wee lass, right? Like what? Three lass. years. Three She's years old? Irish, babe. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was a wee lass. I was three years old. See, she could be Irish. She just said it back. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I guess we could talk to Peter and see, but I, I'm thinking no. <laughs> well, um, if you've seen if you've seen the movie Captain Phillips, the guy's Somali, and then he calls the other guy Irish, and it's like the ongoing joke. See, there, there you, you go. go. So you you I assume your whole family fled then uh, Somalia um, back then. It was a rough yeah. time for Somalia. After the civil war um, in Somalia, we fled to a refugee camp in Kenya. And that's where I was born. And then I, finally, after like five years of waiting, my family was granted refuge in the United States. And so my family and I headed on over across the ocean to to call Utah our home. So. And- how did you how did they choose Utah? Was that just part of the refugee program? So Utah has a huge uh, well, it did before the environment right now, but it did have a really great um, understanding and allowing a lot of different refugee people to come in. Um, and my mother, she knew one person that lived here um, and her nickname was actually Halima Salt Lake. They called her that. Um, so when my mom <laughs> um, picked, we moved here because she knew someone. That's that's pretty crazy. Um, and you're right, because Salt Lake does have, I mean, part of why we have a lot of the various cultures that we have here are because we do have a lot of, of refugees that, that have come here and call Utah home. But, I mean, recently in the last few years, that's, that's obviously been something that's kind of changed politically in, in the U.S. as a whole. And I think Utah is just kind of a, a factor of that. What do you, What do you think about that? 
Yeah, definitely. Um, we saw like a shift in the rhetoric being used um, in the 2016 election, particularly about refugees and immigrants. And when um, we came to America, of course, there was always that um, stereotype, that um, hatred that was hidden. But I feel that it really came out and it really was un. Um, pushed out into the public and in everyone's face. Uh, and what happens when that happens? You lose contact, you lose um, value. And that's why I feel that the immigration has decreased in Utah and in our country as a whole because of the rhetoric being used. Are you sure you're only like 18 years old? <laughs> you're pretty well spoken. Because my 19 year old just came down and I don't think she's even that close. She's, yeah. She's a smart kid. She is. She's not. She's a good kid. We were talking earlier off air about her stories and how she, she tells stories and they go like this. So the thing went into the thing and then hit the other thing and like the thing, and that's literally how she tells a story. But she has a good heart, so I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, no. I definitely have those moments too. Don't worry. It's not. (laughs) Oh, so you you are a teenage girl. Yes, definitely. Um, it's not always my academic uh, writing and literature being talked about. It's usually just dumb things that teenagers talk about. But I have time and places for that, of course. I was going to say how, because you said you started public speaking at 12, how did you find a balance with your friends and, you know, not being the one that was pushing them all the all the time to go do something to save the world, but to find a balance of, you know, movies and skating rinks also? Yeah, that's a great question. I really struggled with that growing up. It was like the the two sides to myself where I wanted to be constantly trying to change the world and also be like a kid at the end of the day. And what really changed that is I became friends with people that have that same problem as well. Um, doing the activist stuff that I do, I've met so many teenagers that I call like my best friends. And it's really weird that like I've my all of my best friends do the same things that I do. And we have that aspect of ourselves where we are at protests, at rallies, chanting. But at the end of the day, we can go like get a movie and popcorn and talk about like Endgame and other stuff like that together. So it's really just about finding those people and making friends with the like, like different things you like. That's a good balance to have. How did you, I mean, I don't, we live in such a weird, so we're all about like late thirties, early forties, and it's such an interesting climate. Um, and I, I might have said this to you in a tweet before where we didn't have anything to fight for growing up. And now all of a sudden, you know, you guys are at the forefront of what our future is going to be. How do you decide what's most important to fight for? Um, like in the like immediacy? Yeah, that's an awesome question. I think that in the work that we do, it's not about picking and choosing battles or fights. You know, when we're looking at injustices that happen to people, when you look deeper into those injustices, they vary from person to person. Like I said, I have so many different marginalized groups part of me. So one thing that would affect me as a woman is going to double affect me as a black woman or triple affect me as a Muslim black woman, you know? And it's not really like, hey, sorry, we're not going to deal with this right now because we have this to deal with. 
it's you can't do that in this. You have to figure out how you're going to help everyone and level the playing fields for every single person. I was reading something back. Um, it's a book. And they were talking about how like slavery affected black women. And it was like, OK, we'll give you the we'll get rid of slavery. But then women's rights will be dealt with later. And then the black women are just like, well, what does that have to say for us? So there's a there's a sense of urgency and immediate and like immediacy with the things that are happening. But they have to be addressed altogether. How do you think the the prevalence of of you know phones in your pocket and social media at your fingertips, you know every every moment of the day has had an impact on on activism and on the things that you even you specifically are doing? I think that they're the sole reason that people are doing they're doing right now. Um, of course, we had huge protests, huge rallies in, in the past and through history because of media. But then when you give every single person the opportunity to have the media, to have it in your fingertips, it's going to cause more polarization than ever. People from each side are just going to keep going further and further in their directions. But then when you have your views, you'll definitely find like-minded people. With the March for Our Lives in particular, that was a way for kids to be using social media to change the world, to change laws. We saw after the, the shooting, the day of shooting survivors were tweeting at politicians, tweeting at the president, um, calling for a, a protest to happen in a couple of weeks, walkouts to happen the next day. And that would have not, the mobilization would not have been capable. Of course, there's the, the stereotype like, oh, kids on their phones, but then like, we're like changing systems. We're like um, utilizing our voices to win elections and to host town halls and all this stuff with our phones as well as playing like games like Candy Crush. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I've said it before. So I, I was in high school when Columbine happened. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, I mean, that was, a, that was a long time ago, but it wasn't all that different than what happened in Parkland. Mm -hmm. the, the big difference was for us, we didn't, I mean, the internet was brand new. Like they, not everyone had the internet. Hardly anyone had computers in their home still, and it was not. There was no, there was no way for people even short distances to to really gather and communicate. The only thing you got back then was whatever the news showed you. Mm -hmm. There was no other people's opinion. It was just the news. Mm -hmm. And and now, I mean, these guys and you know you uh, have the ability to communicate quickly. So you have a shooting, a mass shooting that happens in Florida and all the way up here in Utah, you're able to help mobilize and, and create a, a group and a protest and a, something to get national media attention um, to help deliver a message that, that as kids, as students, as, as people, you won't, won't stand up for what's continuing to happen. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So I want I would like to know, because you read this amazing poem, uh, which I'm sure that you have talked to death uh, <laughs> at the March for Her Lives, and it really went viral. And, you know, you, for lack of a better term in our society, became a sensation. How have you managed to balance what your platform and what you're standing for when so many people are talking in your ear because i see that you're mostly active on twitter and that's a lot of people talking mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so I was taken by surprise when um, my poem went viral um, and like I was getting contact from huge like media and, and like newspaper agencies asking for me to do pieces and to talk and all this stuff. And right, that was right after the sh- like the shooting and everything was still so fresh and so new. And I feel like last year was the that moment were the craziest moments of my life. Um, and of course, I I love Twitter. Sorry if some of you guys follow me; it's kind of bad. <laughs> I I utilized it a lot, and I still do because it's the greatest way to to find like minded people and to express yourself. Um, but it was really hard uh, at that moment because it was like I would be in rooms with all these adults and everyone has their own point of view on gun violence. Everyone has their own point of view on different things and different topics. And I, of course, when you're the only, like I'm 17, the only 17 year old and you have the, you get told that, you know, politics aren't meant for you. You shouldn't be here. You shouldn't be talking about this. You know, you're just a kid. You don't know anything. And it's like, I, we, we, we know what's going on. We watch the news. We see things that are trending. We we see all the, the talking points being talked about um, in different policies. And it's it was very belittling, but then that was the reason I kept doing it because I know that being the youth voice is important in those aspects. So I, I'm very grateful for the opportunities that I got, but it was it was also a very big learning curve. So, so speaking of that kind of rhetoric where people are like, well, you're 17, politics isn't for you, stay out of it, you can't even vote. How do you take that sort of, uh, of stance that someone's, you know, someone's saying that stuff to you, how do you take that? And, you know, here we are, we're, we're still a year, uh, year and a half out from an election. Um, and, you know, short of something crazy happening, you know, interest starts to wane. I mean, it's, it's been three, it'll have been three years since the Parkland shooting at that point. Um, and you know, regardless of, of who's running for president, how do you encourage, you know, people in your particular population and your age group to get out and vote? Because that's been something traditionally throughout American history that's been incredibly difficult to mobilize youth to actually get out and vote and make changes? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, one aspect would be the the March for Our Lives. But then just recently, like a couple of months ago, um, there was the climate youth strike, which was huge. It was all over the country. And so we've we've seen we we are continuing to see students youth kids that supposedly have no same politics doing huge things about issues that are so important to them um and that is going to continue till the 2020 elections and when we look back in the past and we look at huge key monumental changes like the Vietnam protests. Those were all youth, teenage college students fighting for um, the end of the war. We see the civil rights movement, kids doing the the bar um, sit-ins, kids doing the the bus sit-ins, the walkouts and all this stuff, and teenagers and college students. So it's nothing new to see students and youth being involved in their politics. When big, huge events happen, the first people that I think that are doing the the big talking and the big walking and putting their money where their mouth is, is the 
the students are the kids because they they have the they don't have anything to sacrifice. You know, I don't have a nine to five job. You know, I'm not going to get fired from my boss if they see me <laughs> fighting this politician. You know, I might get in trouble at my school, but that's so little that can happen. So we're going to continue to see this till 2020 elections because more and more things are so pressing. Like the climate crisis is huge and we're seeing kids fighting and saying this is not going to happen because it's our futures on the line or on the stake. So it's not a one and done thing for kids. It's It's been happening. It's going to continue to happen till this election too. Um, you had mentioned that you kind of found your, your little like group of people that had similar interests. Do you find you have a, a mother that has been very supportive of you. Do you find that the kids that are being activists have the same support behind them? Definitely not. I have friends that are LGBTQ plus activists that parents, if they find out, would disown them. Um, parents that, friends that I'm like, hey, you can say you're coming to my house and we'll go to this rally together um, because their parents just wouldn't let them. So I have been blessed to have a mother that's like, okay, you want to go to this protest? Okay, go, just be safe. Um, when that's not the case for every single person. Um, but then that's why I think that makes it even better because you can teach your kids in the future generations to do even better than what you were doing. It sounds like your mom is a good mom for those friends. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm kind of curious because you, you did just graduate high school. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, where are you going to go to school? Um, I'm going to UC Berkeley in the fall. What are you, that's you know what that's you're very apropos, yet? I think. Yeah. <laughs> I know. In my liberal protesting self is going to like the, the Mecca. <laughs> <laughs> the liberal protesting uh, It's mecca. beautiful out there. <laughs> it's pretty funny because my background is, is uh, pretty hardcore Catholic and my daughter is, um, is atheist. And it took me a little bit to kind of, kind of work through that. But I, she's, she's very, um, outspoken about things and she, and she calls, she calls me out on stuff that I don't think about as, as, as an older person, as someone who's in my early forties that I just grew up thinking about things one way. Um, when you run across these adults and it, it's so obvious to you how clear your point is like, you know, what does it matter who someone loves? It shouldn't, it shouldn't matter. When you run across these adults that say you have no business talking about these things, you have no business being here, and we think that this is why, how do you counteract that culture of them just not really, because I, I find myself doing it, just not really thinking about what they're saying. They're just, it's a rote um a way a, a rote response to a certain stimuli oh being gay is bad or being black means you're a criminal or being muslim means that you are going to go and blow up a building people are they just they just get so used to that they don't even really think about it what do you say to those people um and that is that is what I've been dealing with for the last couple of years to really find my middle ground and find one and where I can talk and really see who 
is there to hear and who's there to not. Um, and so how I think of this, I thought of a good way, is that there's three group of people. There's the people that are on your side, the people that are kind of iffy, and the people that just will never. And my my strength and my energy will never go to the third people, the people that will never, no matter how much you talk, no matter how much you say, this is my life. These are my rights. This is me as a human being. Just treat me like one. Some of those people will just never. It's like talking to a brick wall. And I would never put my energy in trying to tell those people that I deserve to have water, deserve to have a house, deserve to be able to walk the streets, deserve to be go to school. But the people in the middle that were kind of iffy, that kind of can see where you're coming from, but really don't know what you're coming from. Those are the people that I spend a lot of my time talking to, di- having dialogue with, healthy dialogue, and saying, here, here, this might be your point of view, but then just listen to this. Maybe you can just really take what I'm saying as a human being. And I've been exposed to the most heinous, horrible people in in real life and mostly on social media and that's where the block comes from i'm infamous for my blocks (laughs) (laughs) i will block you i've been i've been said the most disgusting things in public and those are not people i'm going to put my energy to those are not people i'm never going to ask someone to to value me as a human being and to think that i deserve to live i'm never going to do that there's time and place for everything. So I've really learned over the two years after trial and error and trial and error, where to be putting my energy and my activism. And some people you just, you don't put the energy into. You must have pretty thick skin too, I would imagine. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> I've learned the, how to get everything in one ear and out the other. Um, and that's really crucial. As a white man, I just want you to know that Almost if with all of the things that she has counted against herself, all of the things that people pick on her about, she would not be where she is if she didn't have thick skin. Because I only have one pretty obvious thing, which is the woman thing. And you, you do. You have to you have to kind of deal with it with the way she said. And it takes some people a lifetime to learn that. Some people don't ever learn that. So congratulations to you that you've learned that there are people that you shouldn't waste your breath on they're they're not ever going to change and you should you should spend your your valuable time and your energy on people that you can actually maybe change their mind or at least get them thinking uh, in a different way so that maybe the next time they run across someone like you they're not cruel they're they're more thoughtful about how they treat someone definitely so why did you choose berkeley um, I'm, Berkeley has been one of my dream schools for a while. Um, I, I'm a debater, so I always go there for debate tournaments. And it's just an amazing atmosphere. There's a lot of, of course, there's a lot of politics, and that's something that I like. But then they have a really good um, legal studies um, program, and I want to do law. So I picked it because it was one of the best, really. Lincoln, Douglas, or cross-examination? Um, I did policy. <laughs> <laughs> I was a policy kid. <laughs> I did debate in high school years and years ago. So oh, that's I'm, awesome. What kind of debate did you do? Primarily cross examination, just because awesome. philosophy wasn't debatable to me. <laughs> Plus, when you're at UC Berkeley, there's great restaurants and a really awesome record shop that you should take time to go visit. 
I would love that. I'll send it to you because it's it's awesome. <laughs> Please do. Please do. So so you have a you have a website too, right? Yes, I do have a website. And it's it's based off your nickname, it sounds like, right? The walking stereotype. Yeah, I really championed that slogan. I have a poetry album coming out soon, and that's the title of my poetry album as well, The Walking Stereotype. So what are you, what are you hoping to accomplish with your website? Um, I really am just – it's under construction right now, but I just want it to be a place where I can put all of my content um, and write articles about things that I care about, do videos about things I care about, um, and just to, for a place to – for people to see what it's like to be a walking stereotype. Well, I think you got it covered. I think you're, uh, I mean, that's a nickname for a reason, I think. So. Are we still championing for Common to be involved with your poetry? <laughs> <laughs> I would love that. Last year, like I said, it was really crazy. And I was thrown so many awesome like ideas to start. And that was one of them. But it just, I didn't have the time. And so I never got to. But I would, that would be awesome. I would love that. When you went viral, what was the most exciting thing that happened to you during all of that? Um, one of the most exciting things, I think, would be I got in really good contact with the ACLU. And then that summer, I went to their program and I spoke at their program. Um, and then I'm going again this year to be an intern. So I love the ACLU. I really want to work with them after I graduate law school. Um, so that was one of the greatest takeaways. I think interning with them is a really good step in that direction. <laughs> Thank you. You have a lot to fight for right now. So speaking of that, what what scares you the most that's out there right now? Because there are a million different issues and, and you are, like you said, in in a in a in a ton of different marginalized groups, but overall in, in today's political climate and, and what's going on nationally and internationally, what what's the one thing that scares you the most? Um, I really think it's what's happening right now in the South um, with the abortion bans. Um, being a woman, that is so hard. When when I when I was reading about it and I saw the headlines and it was trending, it was really devastating um, because knowing the state that we live in, that is a very likely thing to happen here. Um, and it affects every single woman um, and any every single person that has the genitals that we have or can give birth, um, no matter you what you identify with. Um, so that's something that is really pressing. And also, what's happening with Iran is terrifying. Um, World War Three would not be a good thing for anybody. <laughs> that's pretty much the truth, right there. I, I think what you just said about Iran is probably more than ninety percent of Americans understand. Yep. <laughs> well, Saida, uh, we have one other question for you because you have lived in Utah for so long. Uh, you grew up here, really, uh, went to high school here. What's one thing that you would tell someone that was visiting the state of Utah that they had to do before they left? Oh, that is a hard one. <laughs> um, dang, there are so many things. But I think that they need to see all of the coffee shops here. You like <laughs> the, the Utah coffee shops are like so different. I feel like coffee shops everywhere are great, but we have such a huge amount and they're the greatest atmosphere. One of my favorites is Sugar House Coffee. So I tell every single person when they come here that they should go there. 
Did I just hear a young liberal activist tout coffee shops? That was awesome. <laughs> and by the way, this is our 157th episode, and we have never had anyone say, go to the coffee shops. So oh. high five through the mic. The teenager said that. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> In Utah, no less. Yeah, it's only the only hangout because everything is closed all the time. So it's like, hey, let's hang out. What do you want to do? Let's go to a coffee shop. Like, that's automatically what we're doing. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> that makes me kind of happy. Me inside. too. <laughs> Saida, thank you so much for uh, taking some time to talk with us. Thank you. I had so much fun. You guys are the most lively bunch ever. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Good luck. You will be so me. successful. Uh, thank you. I've had interviews with like the most monotone people ever. So hearing you guys' laughter and your guys' friendship is awesome. <laughs> well, we will be happy to support you and see what you do in the future because we know that you're going to do big things. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Of course. And thank you for your time. I know it's been a long time and I bug you all the time. So thank you. No, I'm glad you bugged me because I've always wanted to do this, but like I said, it was really hard. But now everything's done and I've graduated. <laughs> so are your are your classes that you're taking just online or are you moving like immediately? Um, they're online, so I won't be moving immediately. I'm moving the end of July. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Very cool. You'll love it out there. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Saida. Thank you. Have a great day. Well, that was a fun conversation with Saida. Hopefully, uh, hopefully our listeners enjoyed it as much as I did. She brought me to tears a couple of times that she she is going places, and it's really nice to see. Yeah, she's going to California. Ha ha! <laughs> it's just it's just nice to see um, these kids that that stepped forward during this tragedy didn't step back into the shadows that many of them are staying active and they're keeping us old folk active and, and aware of their situations because they do see the world through completely different eyes. I'm sure, um, all of you know, kids her age. And when you talk to them, they bring such a different view of the world to your space. Like, make you rethink things. I say it all the time that my kids do. I'm sure yours do. And I know that you have nieces and nephews and friends that have kids and stuff that. Well, they're also going through things that like we can't even comprehend. Like it's scary for kids right now. And and to see that there are kids that are willing to, to step up and, and to have a voice. I mean, like I said during the interview, like we didn't have to do that. So there's, there's, there's two things that really stood out to me. Uh, that she said one is you know throughout history throughout american history in particular it is the youth that have been the the leaders in a lot of these movements that did the sit-ins that 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 were protesting for vietnam well look at world war ii who fought it 16 17 18 19 year olds yeah kids and vietnam same thing and so you know it is interesting. I mean, on the one hand, it is. It's a different experience for everyone as they grow up. Every generation goes through something. Um, to say our generation didn't go through things is is absolutely crazy because we did. I remember growing up in high school, guns in the parking lot. People drove around with guns in their car. Like, well, you were in semi-rural. It doesn't Wyoming. matter. 
And to, the, to drive around with loaded, racked rifles and shotguns in your car in your truck was not totally out of the ordinary. Uh, and, and then Columbine happened. And I remember even, even after that, like the change to the school, like no more weapons on campus. Like they actually had to make a rule, which I thought was crazy that we had to have a rule that said no guns on campus, meaning you couldn't put them in your car. They couldn't be in a gun rack in your car. And, and it's just that sort of thing that like you, you maybe you didn't think about. <laughs> Sorry, I was what? a Wayne's World quote just go through. Uh, <laughs> you don't even know a gun, let alone, a gun let alone rack. enough mini guns to necessitate a gun rack. What am I going to do with a gun rack, okay. Stacy? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, we dated ourselves hardcore with that. Um, so good. But my point is, like, every generation goes through something different. And I think, you know, on the one hand, the social social media has made it and the information age has made it so that for them, uh, for, for her generation, for my daughter's generation, for Jeremy's daughter's generation, um, that information is at your fingertips. And the, the good side of it is it's right there and it allows them to mobilize and continue to keep the word. So it doesn't, you well, know, like she said, to find like-minded people too, that can, you know, be doing the same thing. Well, um, and like I said, when we were kids, the only news we got was whatever the news told you. Mm-hmm. Who knew if it was right, wrong, a lie? Now, even if the news is garbage, you've got firsthand people giving their accounts right next to the Well, news. And, in, and in the age of cell phone videos, you have, oh, yeah. you have evidence of things that are happening as they happen or moments after they happen that we would have never had before. I actually have a lot of thoughts on this regarding our segment about our Utah criminal today, actually. And, and I think we'll get to that. <laughs> and I and I think that I think that, you know, the other side of that coin is if you look at some of the numbers of, of what kids today are going through in terms of depression and suicide, there's some direct correlations to when they get phones and when they get access to social media and how that has impacted this generation. I, I think it's affecting adults as as well. So here to play devil's advocate just just a little bit. Um, when you can pick and choose who it is you hang around with so specifically um does like she talked about the polarization of of people and she she actually said it herself um because of media so you you get to pick very specifically you know these are the 10 things that I just I can't be around anybody else has it helped with some of this intolerance? Because now, you know, 90% of the time you're hanging around with these people who agree with you, who bolster you, who send you things that, that, um, reinforce your, your beliefs, um, that fortify you. And you're not around people that, that give you an, an alternate way to, to think. And so when you're confronted with those people, now she sounds like she's doing it in a very healthy way, but a lot of people don't. I even find myself getting a little frustrated um, when confronted with an alternate view. You know, if it's not right out outright sexist or misogynistic or, or racist or whatever, if it's just literally an alternate view, sometimes it's really hard for me to be patient with that. I, I That's the other thing that she said that stood out to me. So the two things were, uh, you know, one that... Uh, I don't fucking remember the first one, but the second one. One, I don't fucking remember. Well, 
the the second one that she said, and she she just briefly said it uh, in 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 context of other stuff, but she said, "I talk to the people who will listen." So it's not oh in her in, in her, her list three, of three in her yeah. list of three things. She said, the "Iffy you know, people; those are the people you want to talk to." There's there's people that agree with me. There's people that will listen or the iffy people, and then there's people that are adamantly opposed to me, and I don't waste my energy on that third group. But that second group, if she'll talk to people that will listen to her. And I think that's something that, that we don't do as a whole very well. And I think to your point, Bree, that that's absolutely what I think it's, I think it goes on and it's, it's, it's hard for people to admit that, you know, I'm a super left leaning individual. And when someone starts saying something that I don't agree with, I shut down. And the second you start to shut down, it doesn't matter what your viewpoint is. It doesn't matter if you're on the left, if you're pro-abortion, if you're anti-abortion, if you're pro-life, if you're pro-gun, if you're anti-gun, if you're pro-Trump, if you're anti-Trump. It doesn't matter what side of the fence on whatever issue it is that you sit on. The second you shut down and you're willing to listen to uh, intelligent and, and thoughtful opinions. Um, now, that's not saying you have to listen to racist bigotry um, by any stretch of the imagination. No, but it also helps you understand where people are coming from. Yeah. But but I think there is a lot of that. I think because you get to hang around with like-minded people, it, it and I've seen it in my kids, right? Like our, our kids sometimes are so adamant and so passionate about something, they literally can't hear anything that's not 100% in agreement and and it's it's frustrating they they're getting better as they get older but it's something that i i think absolutely becomes polarizing because now you can let your freak flag fly and every little thing that is in your head that is your viewpoint you can find people with similar similar view viewpoints and there's less I don't want to call it bipartisanism because that's not what it is at all but there there's less open discussion that happens as a result well, I'm not opposed to your freak flag flying. I just... I am. If you are in... <laughs> look, if you are into, like, feet in jello I, with popping that, balloons, I don't want to know about yeah, that shit. I don't care. Like, that doesn't bother me. It doesn't affect Jess me in any way. Jess is smiling. Like, I just That's mean, how she makes money on the we side. We have to remember... <laughs> My other jobs. <laughs> we have to remember <laughs> to always listen. It do, and, and when I say always... There's the exceptions of, of course, the, like I said before, and what you said before, the racists, the, you know, you don't have to listen to the really crazy extreme people who shouldn't be listened to, but we're missing the middle of the road and we forget that it's okay to have another opinion. When we're fighting for LGBTQ plus rights, that's just another way of living as opposed to a straight lifestyle. So when it comes to our politics and things like that, we have to remember that, yes, there are some things that are totally, completely right and totally, completely wrong. But there are some things that are in a gray area that you can have a different understanding of and still be an okay person. Well, and it's important to understand where people come from. Like, not all Mormons that think that being gay is a sinner horrible people i tell you that i always am a glutton for punishment and i will read people's comments that's why i just want to understand i want to see what people are talking about it doesn't mean that i agree with them but i want a better understanding well you can think it's a sin all you want i don't care think it's a sin but don't impose your religious belief 
on that person. You personally, you think it's a sin. Great. That's fine. They don't. That's also fine. What? People have religious beliefs. I'm just saying. You get to have your religious belief. It's when your religious belief becomes imposed, when you impose that belief, whether it's religious, political, whatever it is, it's when you start imposing those beliefs on other people. It, It would be just as bad for someone to force abortion on somebody, in my opinion, as it is to deny someone abortion. You shouldn't like that is uh, someone's own personal thing that they get to deal with on their own period. The end. So you can, you can say, I don't believe in abortion because me personally, I don't think I could ever have an abortion, but But if my daughter needs to have one or wants to, I don't think anyone's pro abortion, by the way, let's be clear. I think people are pro-choice and pro-life. There might be some fucking sycophants right. that are pro-abortion, but but the the thing that in that argument in particular in abortion, the thing to keep in mind is the the view of the view of a lot of people, religious and not religious, is that life begins at conception. Life begins when the egg is fertilized by sperm, and that you're taking a life. You are committing murder by having an abortion for whatever reason doesn't matter what the reason is that it's committing murder where i have a hard time with with pro-life folks is when they're like well in the cases of rape and incest i guess it's okay like well no you're either committing murder or you're not exactly and so how can you take the stance of in these certain circumstances it's okay to abort this fetus when in others it's considered murder that's not okay to me murder's murder doesn't matter if i murder a mentally handicapped person or if i murder someone that's that's you know fucking going to end up killing someone later down the line murder is murder and so if that's what you believe i don't know how you can be okay with making exceptions for fringe cases with with pregnancy but That's where they're coming from. But I think when you shut down and you go, well, no, it's just it's a woman's right to choose no matter what. And you don't listen to why they don't want that choice to be there. Then you're not able to have an open discussion about things. And that's just one example. No, it's a woman's choice no matter what. Okay. You're entitled to that opinion. And I don't disagree. To be clear, I'm extremely pro-choice. I have no problem with abortion. I try to hand out morning after pills every time I go out. Okay, stop. Um, <laughs> You're like, here's some plan B. Like, here's some fucking plan B. Okay, you no. didn't take a condom, so take this instead. Um, I, I'm just saying the only way you have open discussion and reasonable discourse is to be able to listen to people when they have opinions Which is what that she was yours. saying, right. So I, The iffy people. I'm still blown away. That that a 17, 18 year old kid at 12, she was public speaking. That has always been, I love public speaking. And that was always one of my, if I ever went in teaching would be to teach kids to public speak because they're terrified of it. She is more well-spoken and more informed than, and I wasn't kidding. Like, I, I, I don't know how our listener base is, but I would venture to say that probably 80 to 90% of Americans don't actually know what's going on in Iran. And to have her be terrified of what's going on in Iran? She should be. We all should be. 
we should all be very scared of a, of a few things going on internationally. And most people can't see past the fucking border wall or healthcare that's in this country. And, and those are honest to God, the least of our worries when you think about what's going on outside of our, outside of our country and outside of our continent even. So, well, I think that's the trouble with Americans though. We, we are super hyper focused on ourselves and nothing Nothing matters until it affects us directly. And so none of that will matter okay, until they two. actually see the problems that it's going to cause. Okay. Um, so now we're going to, we're not going to bring any news uh, today because uh, it's the last day of the month uh, for us. The last podcast of the month, I should say. Um, there's a couple more days left of the month, depending on when <laughs> you listen to this. But if you're listening to it in four years... Uh, in a you know on July first, then there's thirty days left in the month. I don't fucking know. Um, it's a podcast, but for us, it is uh, our infamous Utah segment. Um, oh man, we picked a good one this time. So uh, our infamous Utah this month is uh, a, a gentleman by the name of Mark Hoffman with one F. Uh, H O. Did I put two? No, I'm just oh. saying that. Because I just kept typing it wrong. So. I, I always type <laughs> H-O-F-F. Uh, and I suspect the H-O-F-Fs maybe were Hoffman's with uh, one F and uh, or related to him. And we're no, let's fucking change that name. <laughs> I'm just kidding. So Mark Hoffman, um, who wants to give a brief bio of him and, and who he is just overall before we get into the serious nitty gritty? I can give a quick overall. So he has he is said to have been the greatest forger who ever lived. And as we get into it, you'll see where that comes from. So he's from Utah, born, let's see, 1954, Salt Lake City. Uh, so lived his whole life here in Utah. Went to Olympus High School. Go, you Olympus High Schoolians. Went on a... <laughs> <laughs> he, he went on a, an LDS mission, like a good LDS boy in, in uh Well, yeah, but when he went, he already wasn't... That's that's fine. What? ...believing in the church. Doesn't matter. The church didn't know that. Uh, also, the church, you know, up until <laughs> relative recent time, didn't know that he didn't believe in the church. Um, they found out the hard way. However, it did say that when he was when he was a kid, I believe 12 or 13 years old, was his first forgery. He found that... Or he... he Came in contact with a somewhat rare coin, but then he put a marking on it. He figured out how to put a marking on it that did make it a rare coin, and he fooled a lot of people. And he said that that was one of the instances that kind of pushed him along his path. So Mark Hoffman, uh, Mark William Hoffman, um, ultimately... He's he's in prison uh, for life. He's actually in the Gunnison Jail. He was moved out of yeah, max just, security is, uh, in 2016. Which is weird. I didn't realize that. So what they do is they reevaluate um, the needs and the situation of the inmates and whether they keep them um, at Draper at the prison or Gunnison, or which is still else. prison. So. Yeah, it's still a prison. Yeah. Uh, it's just, you know, a prison. He that's... just has no behavior management issues is what they evaluated that on. It's also, I mean, Gunnison, like if you really think about it, if you're in Gunnison, which is out in like San Pete County, I think, um, there's literally nothing there. Like I think the, <laughs> the town surrounding it is less than 20,000 people. And pretty much if you manage to get out of jail, <laughs> um, you've got hundreds of miles of hey, nothing. It has its own hospital. Well, it has to because there's a prison or the prison wouldn't be there. Yeah, you've got hundreds of miles of desert. Yeah, hundreds of miles of nothing. (laughs) (laughs) So the chances of you actually getting away are a lot less probably than if you get out of prison in a big city 
which is where the state pen is here. Um, but he was ultimately uh, sentenced to life in prison for uh, a couple of murders that we'll, we'll probably get to and all... Probably we have to. <laughs> and all of the fraudulent stuff that he did, all the forgery. But let's talk... So part of why he's so famous is not the bombs. It no, is it's... It is the, the bombs that ultimately got him caught... That, um, that was his Al Capone's tax evasion, because that's what they got Al Capone for. Same thing. That if, if he wouldn't have done the bombs, he would have gotten away. And it wasn't. No one suspected him for the longest time. So he started. So like you said, Jeremy, he started forgery. What when he was twelve? Twelve something like that. Um, yeah. And and created a, a fake coin. Now, of course, back back in these days, so that would have been what like sixty six ish. Yeah. Not yes. like. Like forgery is not a super refined, like anti-forgery techniques aren't super refined yet. There's not a big information space out there, but to they don't figure have that the money with the, with all the, the funky stuff in it, like they have these days. Yeah. Well, and they can't, they couldn't tell, you know, they couldn't tell different documents and stuff, but so he purchases, uh, uh, uh he purchases and, and tries to sell off a, coin right with a with yep. an extra mint marker on yep. it that basically gets him some amount of money no one can tell that it's forged correct and like i don't know if you're 12 years old and get away with that like it's pretty cool it's a like, pretty big ego boost yeah like if i can get away with this what else can i do uh and i think that you know that was probably stuck in the back of his mind i don't know when he really started uh beyond that um but um after Please. his after his mission, so he serves his yeah. mission, uh, and then didn't in during his mission he, he do some nefarious shit too. Well, so that so so when we get into it a little bit, so he he gets this Bible that he claims he finds oh the seventeenth century King James Bible, but it comes back to ultimately that he he purchased it when he was on his mission, which was in Bristol, England, by the way. Yeah, so so, he, so yes, the Bible was an old Bible, but he didn't happened upon it. He bought it when he, when he was on his mission. He's like, and then I dug it up in the forest. And from, from what I can gather is like that acquisition of that old book. And, and in 66, when he was 12, he bought some old stuff. Like he had a, he had a serious interest outside of forgery in old literature, yeah. in so, ancient books and texts. 1973, and, he bought the book of common prayer, which was his first old book that he bought from Deseret Book Company. So, yeah, he had an interest in these old writings, these old scripts from a young age. And I think that's like twofold. One, I think he has this interest. He had an interest that was so great that he was basically in debt up to his teeth because of it, Uh, even with all the money he was making from forgeries. Well, but I and, think it also maybe helped him forge better. <laughs> we'll get into it in just a few minutes, but he, not everything he did was illegal in forgery. Uh, so, so let's let's jump back slightly. So he goes to Utah State University in Logan. He's only there for a couple of years. Um, during that time, though, he comes up with an account of the LDS temple ceremony, and he he sells it to an anti Mormon. In Salt Lake. That's kind of the turning point. So well, I think it was about this time that my father met him because my father met him. So, but, but let's step back because that before that he had sold off to the Mormon church. So when he, that 17th century King James Bible that he, he there was a paper inside of it. So that right? comes later. That, I thought that was before. Nope. That comes a little bit later. Okay. 
So so he sells his first, and it was probably legitimate. He didn't he didn't create this this document that he sold, but that's what kind of gave him the rush that holy cow, you can make money off this stuff. So back to your dad, though, I want to hear about that. He met him, or he think? Oh yeah. Yeah, my dad was about 15 or 16, so this was like right as he was starting his venture into church papers. <laughs> uh-huh. And he worked um, with the, I believe it was the Campbells that my dad said, at a camping real estate business. So they'd like sell places that you could go camping, uh-huh. kind of like a... Uh, Timeshare, yes, camping timeshare sort of, of thing. Yes. And so that's where he met them. Um, and then fast forward and I'll tell you a little bit more. Okay. So so he sells this. He, he decides there's money to be made. So he, he drops out of school. And that's when he starts his rare book collecting business. So it's in 1980. Um, so we jump up to 19. He's married. He shows his wife this 1688 edition of the Bible and specifically points out that there's several pages that are stuck together. So he starts to, to plant the seeds because he needs someone to believe it. So that's where that comes from. And then in this Bible, supposedly, he finds what is known as the Anthon transcript. Yeah, and he shows this to the Jeff Simmons, who's a, a Utah State University archivist. Um, and... Basically, the Anthon transcript um, is supposedly some of the writings that Joseph Smith made on the plates from the gold right. plates. So originally, yes. So originally, and this is this is this really happened um, when they're, they're in when they're creating the Book of Mormon. They take a certain number of pages from that original transcript to this Anthon fellow in New York, show it to him to get him to validate it. At the time, he says, I can't validate it. This isn't, this isn't what you're telling me it is. I'm not recognizing it. I can't validate it. So he says, bring me the book that you're getting this from, and I can validate it. And they say, well, we can't because it's... Because God said no. It's from an angel, and it gives them the whole story. And uh, this Anthon says, well, I can't, I can't decipher a book that's sealed. So he wouldn't give them the validation. So the, the the reason why this was such an important document to the LDS Church is if this document could be found and validated, it's now a solid piece of evidence. It, hand, it hands validity to the entire Mormon faith. Exactly. So that's the importance behind this particular document. And so in in April of 1980, the church actually accepts that as a valid document. Right. So he is discovered now in, in the eyes of the church, and this starts to make local and national news, like KSL uh, picks up the story. So KSL was a, a big thing even back then, but uh, they pick up the story, and they interview Hoffman, um, and basically he's got this discovery, uh, and um, the Mormon church ends up buying it from him. For 20000 and And 20000 bucks in 1980 is a lot of fucking money. $20,000 now isn't something to... No, but I think, it, it, but you know, something like that would be worth considerably more. But right. the point is, in 1980, they have they have this thing. They validate this thing. It's in this old Bible. They're like, this is legit. Like, this thing is not a forgery. We're accepting it. This is... And the Mormon church is like, this exists. We're We're valid. <laughs> Well, exactly, and they go. Everybody on, likes to be validated. They go if if you look through the well, especially look, <laughs> in the eighties, the Mormon Church is seen, and even still today, but more so back then, it's seen as an occult still. 
right? Like these are these crazy fucking people believe this crazy ass shit about some dude transcribing gold plates and a fucking blanket with a flashlight in the eighteen hundreds. Don't forget the rocks. This, you know, yeah, the rocks. Like I mean, I'm right. I'm, I'm, just, I'm kind the, of being the, 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 I'm being facetious. But at the same time, at the same time, like that's kind of it. And so you have these, you know, these these centuries old religions in, in you know, built off of Catholicism, essentially in uh, the Judeo Christian belief system. And then you have Mormons and, and Mormons. The LDS church is trying to give validity to their story that everyone else is like, yeah, this is crazy bullshit. This is going to be another fucking uh, Jones thing going on. <laughs> Jones. Jim, Jim Jones thing going down, you know, in Mexico at some point. And that's what everyone's kind of fearful of. <laughs> Whatever. It doesn't matter. <laughs> was it was Johannesburg, South Africa. Yeah. It's okay. It's this almost is, like Mexico. They're anyway, basically yeah, the same. We're, they're basically we're, the same place. But but the point job, is, Trump. The point wow. is, they're trying to lend validity to their religion right. in, which, in a time where it's it's really an under question, which they always have. But for them, finding what they think at the time is something this significant is a game changer. So so they pay him for that, and then this is what this this just cracked me up. Shortly thereafter, he gets arrested for stealing a bag of sliced almonds from a grocery store in Salt Lake. <laughs> what the hey, hell? <laughs> sometimes you just need almonds. Well, I mean, it's just sometimes you feel like a nut. He got the munchies. <laughs> not everyone is not everyone is smart in every way. <laughs> but you know, the 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 interesting thing to me is during all this time when when the Mormon Church, the LDS Church, is looking to buy this this Anthon transcript, like he is convincing people. Um, you know, this Dorothy Dean lady in Carthage, Illinois. He goes out and talks to her. Did you just say Illinois? Yeah. And he convinces her that um, basically the source of this old Bible came from her mom out there when he clearly bought this in Bristol. Right. So he's not, not only is he creating very good forgeries, but then he's also a con man and he's convincing people of things that are just absolutely completely false. Well, he got her to write an affidavit yes. saying it was true. Like, like, what is he saying to her to convince her that, <laughs> yep, this is an old family heirloom that, that your mom had that, like, how do you convince someone of that? Like, that takes a silver tongue. Well, so, and, and her, her tie-in is, uh, she's one of the heads of the RLDS church. Yeah, the the the, the revision reform. Yeah. Actually, if you if you go back, which actually leads us to the next document he found. So uh, it is true that and and there's there's accounts of it that Joseph Smith actually ordained or blessed his son to be the next prophet and leader of the church. However, when Joseph Smith dies, Brigham Young, being the slick bastard that he is, convinced the church that nope, I am the next prophet took the, the lion's share of the members and left. So the RLDS church is actually, honestly, the truest form of the church because Joseph Smith really did say that it's supposed to stay in the family. So he finds his next document. So he's convinced her of the whole Bible thing, but then he finds the next document, which is the record of this blessing where Joseph Smith tells his son he's the next prophet. Yeah. and And so... The LDS Church wants this because they don't want that news getting out. The RLDS Church wants this because they want that news getting out. Exactly, because so they're trying to, to make their split valid. Right. So, yeah, this document is is very detrimental to one group, and it, it, it tells the other group everything that they've always believed. Is valid, yeah. Is valid. 
so and the the funny thing is, so as he's got this bidding war going on, he finally gets it. Uh, he finally sells it to the LDS Church for, for another 20, 20 grand again uh, in trade. Why do you like time. up his game? <laughs> well, oh, no, 20, 20, oh, well, yeah, well, but 20, what he traded trade for, was it because it was the 80s? Yeah, but this is so he trades for some additional texts and, and and stuff. But this is what's crazy as he sells it to him, he then fucking breaks the news with like the New York Times that this document exists. So yeah, he's like, he breaks the here's news. the 20,000. Oh, yeah, New York Times, by the way, this fucking document exists and the church has it. So now the church is forced to provide this document. So part of his scheme that he told, that he, that he talks about in some of his interviews, is he wanted the church to be, to, to disclose all of their secrets. And he wanted all of this stuff to come out and for them to admit that a lot of this stuff happened or didn't happen, be whatever the case may be. So that was part of his, his goal in the first place. Yeah, and so so now the now this is this is what becomes really crazy. So now that there's this this thing out there, uh, and because you know what was happening before isn't really crazy. Well, no, but so so this this document exists, right? This document now that he's created this bullshit document about the blessing exists, and after it becomes this public news spectacle, um, so forensics experts for the U.S. Postal Inspectors Crime Lab authenticate the document yeah. that he's totally fucking forged. So this isn't just the church anymore. These are these are federal investigators essentially saying this is a legitimate real document. Yeah, saying the the paper is correct, it's the, the right age, the ink is right. Now, this is in the 80s. Technology is way better now. Uh, but back in the 80s they're saying, "Yep, this is all legit stuff." Like he's finding real stuff. And no one's questioning that because he is a collector of old things, no one's really questioning that he's able to find these things. So he actually then turns around and purchases a whole bunch of letters from a guy named Steve Gardner in Utah. Right. So so like I was saying a little bit earlier, he did a lot of legitimate business. Yeah. And he did acquire a lot of true, honest, real. And I'm, and I'm sure because of all of that, it makes Less it lends credence. Yeah, it, to it, his it lends credence, point. and it makes it a lot less questionable when the dude's just producing document after document that are, the in one deal. way or another, damning to the Mormon Church. Right. Well, and it wasn't just LDS stuff. He did a lot of other things. This is what he's most famous for. But he had a lot of other documents that that were not. Well, and some of the stuff wasn't damning until it was proved that it was fake. Well, yeah, because for instance, the the Anthon transcript. Like so, for years the Anton Anthon transcripts, the Mormon Church says, "Yep, this is definitive proof that what we're saying isn't bullshit." They you talked about it. it in general conference. Oh yeah, it was printed in their magazines. Oh yeah, oh yeah, for years. And so then, you know, to come back later, and we'll we'll get there, but to come back later and debunk it all, that's that's the biggest slap in the face for the church. So. Hoffman's, you know, <laughs> I, I, like it, there's just so much. There's so much stuff on what he's done. Um, Man, this know. should have been a two-parter, but we couldn't wait another month. Well, so then he goes on the old interview circuit, and he's <sighs> he is doing everything except Arsenio Hall. He's on <laughs> like everything back in the eighties: news, um, magazines, the L.A. Times, the New York Times, all for all of these tremendous finds that 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 he's been able to 
quote unquote find. So he comes up with another. So he comes up with another. You know, he buys a bunch of letters from this guy, and then he meets this other guy, Brent Ashworth, and he's like, "Hey, I found this letter you might be interested in." And this dude offers him twenty-seven grand for another one. And this one's the Martin Harris letter, which becomes the most controversial of all the letters that he's written. From a forgery standpoint, this one also went through everybody. The FBI, it went through specialists in New York. Everybody authenticated it and said it was the real deal. So so then he's got this letter, and Ashworth says, well, let me trade you some stuff that was signed by Washington, Lincoln, Robert E. Robert Lee. Um, and, of course— it's like trading baseball cards. It really is, Very and that's expensive. the stuff that he's doing. But it's crazy because everything that he does when he's trading these things, you start to realize like he's creating other forgeries based off what he sees from these real legit things. Uh, and so he ends up getting some some handwriting samples and uh, and... <laughs> It's good. It's just crazy. So he, <laughs> so the there's a, a another letter um, uh, that he basically trades to Ashworth for like thirty three thousand um, dollars. That's the Lucy Smith letter. Yep. Uh, and then um, <laughs> more interviews with Sunstone. Um, God, there's just so many letters that he so, was producing. Then the, the big one, the big granddaddy of them all is what's known as the salamander letters. Yes. And this is what, to this day, people equate the Mormon religion and a salamander, lizards, whatever, whatever have you. That is where this all comes from. So what this says is it, it basically says when... Uh, Joseph Smith is supposed to get the golden plates. He goes to get them, and inside the box there is what appears to be a salamander, and then it forms into a person, and it won't let him take the plates. So, once again, horrible news for the LDS Church, because one, it's so freaking weird and so freaking out there, but the Church just agrees with it. Okay. Well, not only do they just agree with it, but they turn around and, and basically try to morph. Well, the salamanders are like they're born of fire, like they can yeah. exist in fire, and that's the way an angel is. And so, like they they just turn this whole thing into well, this is how. Um, so let's see, what did they say? Hold on, I have a thing here. They're, yeah, their their explanation of it. <laughs> uh, let me find the explanation. I had found it. Um, Okay, yeah. The white salamander could be reconciled with Smith's angel Moroni because in the 1820s, the word salamander might also refer to a mythical being thought to be live in fire and a being that is able to set, set, being able to live in fire is a good approximation of the description Joseph Smith gave the angel Moroni. So they actually make up this fucking bullshit thing to go along with, to go along with it forgery. to make it work. Because it revelation. once again, they are just stammering for any evidence so here's the here's the big deal with this it's part two of this uh he wants fifty thousand. the church says that's too much we can't do that uh and he mark says well what if you had a wealthy contributor who bought it and then donated it to the church in walks stephen christensen dun 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 <laughs> So whether or not Stephen Christensen actually had the money or the church gave it to him is still up for debate. But supposedly Stephen Christensen bought the the document for the fifty thousand um, dollars, and they worked it out with a forty thousand or let's say a down payment and then forty thousand over eighteen months or something something. 
Uh, then he turns right around and donates it to the church, though. Steve Christensen. <laughs> kind of like Prop 8 in California. Well, and then... <laughs> the way they had all the contributors. It's... Anyway. <laughs> I, like, I don't... Like, there's just... There's so much timeline and so much information. So that that was one of the other big ones, is the Salamander letter. But he did other stuff, too. So, like, uh, Oath of a Freeman. So oh, it yeah. wasn't just the LDS Church. So he also created documents that had signatures of some of the greatest names in American history, um, including uh, people from the Declaration of Independence. And who was it? Uh, Button Gwinnett. Um, who had like one of the rarest signatures. He was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. And he was one of the rarest and most valuable signatures. And he forged a document with them. He forged Emily Dickinson's name. Um, like crazy. So the Oath of the Freeman, the importance behind that is that was the first printed anything in the United States as the United States. It was just a little declaration that was printed up. Well, and it was done when we were still American colonies in Britain, right. like in 1639. And, and, there is, to anybody's knowledge, n- no originals of that left. So he happens to find one. So you talked about um, Mark being the investor. Um, I'm sure you'll you'll bring up the name, but they also believed, and it's a little bit hearsay, but that um, the sheets, Gary and um, Kathleen may have also been investors as well right? in the letters. Yeah, I mean, that's that's basically what it comes down to is he starts to get all these other people that are... And they're not just buying the letters. They're, they're buying other stuff. They're buying, you know, Deseret coins and, right. and things that he is presumably creating that's all bullshit. It's all fake. Well, he bought stamps from the place that I used to work when my dad was working there. So, so what, he buys, cool. what he buys there is the plates to make stuff, which uh-huh. in today's day and age, he would have been busted right off the bat. But... Because of the time frame and not having computers. Well, he and used a different name, and then they found like a fingerprint that belonged to him on, on the receipt for them. the other guy. Like, yeah, so he had an alias. So yeah, so so he he buys stamps of, of some of this stuff, and he's using it. We're talking about rubber stamps, people, by the way, not like postage stamps. Yeah, or like rubber stamps, like stamp making materials, and and he's going under the pseudonym Mike Hansen. So one of the things that he does is the Deseret Bonds, which what, what that was is before Utah was a state, and it was the, the what's it, the District of Deseret, the, whatever they called it. The, we were a colony of the, some sort. So they had their own money system, which was only good. Like a beehive. It had a beehive on it, yeah. actually. Uh, so there was $1, $1 $2, It was a currency for the area, for the territory. And so that was one that he traded, and he got originals. And then he took those originals and made forgeries and made forgeries. And then he would use those to sell to people to like get spending cash because he'd sell them for like a thousand dollars a piece. I feel like I need to keep an eye out for these, the antique story guys. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like what's crazy is some of those forgeries might actually be worth a lot of money when he dies. Yeah. He's not that old, by the way. He's only 69. No. And he'll be in prison for a long time. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so he, he's like this, like he sold the, those Jim Bridger notes, the, the same thing, yep. uh, from, from the Wyoming territory, basically. Uh, he's selling all of these like bullshit things to people throughout time. Um, Does it say in any of your notes what he did with his money? Is he just putting it back no, into... He's not, it's so horrible with his money. He's horribly broke. He's, uh, yeah. He's like over like one something he's over a million dollars in in debt debt. yeah so this is this is what they this is what robbing peter to pay paul estimate is he's because he's got this addiction to all these 
super expensive rare texts and rare coins and rare you know notes he's buying all of this stuff and then he's forging it and selling those forgeries on which is why it's kind of seem it seem seems legitimate but he spent so much on the fake shit on the real shit and he's yeah. not making enough on the fake shit because he's not selling it in mass it That's- seems like it but he's really not the fake stuff is just to pay for the real stuff and he's horribly in debt, which is actually why they think that towards the end he started taking some of the path that he took. Yeah. So, let's see. The, the list goes on and on, and what kills me is I've got this timeline. It's like a 23-page timeline, which is actually very interesting. Every couple of pages, it, it goes at some point in time that another agency, uh, 20th of March... Uh, for example, Kenneth Rendell sends his final report on the Christian to Christensen. There is no indication that this letter, the Harris 1830 letter, is a forgery. So, like, it is being sent to agency after agency, and every single one of them is coming back and saying, "No, it's legit. It's the real deal." Yeah, and you're, I mean, you're seeing stuff in in the mid 80s where they're like, "Yeah, so the 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 Smith Stowell letter." Um, basically it appears to be in the hand of Joseph Smith and it links the Mormon church, um, founder to the occult in that letter. And so now you're starting to get his really crazy shit, right? Like, and, and it's being picked up nationally. Um, there's no indication, you know, like you said, the Harris letter is a forgery. The LA times, uh, is saying that, um, there was an anonymous source that says there's this other history that's been hidden by the church. These anonymous sources all Hoffman from from yeah. from accounts basically. So his oath of a freeman he tries to sell to the Library of Congress for one point five million. <laughs> but even how they, did that go? <laughs> they didn't buy it. Um. So so this is when he starts to take really big loans, right? This is when because around that same time is when he's taking right. like the two hundred thousand dollars. So loan then, or so then he says he says he's got the McClellan collection, which is another important LDS piece of history. It's something like eight books, or it's something like yeah, that. it's huge. And he wants three hundred thousand for it. Uh, however, he hasn't produced it, but he's got so many things that. He's still right on that cusp of nobody is questioning. And he says, oh, I've got access well, to it. Well, so much of his stuff has been found to be legit. Well, by that's the thing. Sources. Everything's coming back saying it's the real deal. So why do people sus- suspect it? They don't suspect anything. I'm wondering if he's just getting paranoid at this point. Uh, so he wants 300000 uh, and the church gives him an advance of 150000 because he says he needs it to make the purchase because it's in, it's in some collectors in New York City. So... In thinking about it, why doesn't the church just buy it themselves? But they give him $150,000 to make the purchase. And this is actually when things start to unravel a little bit for him. Because at this point, Ashworth, so this is the guy that he was paying way back in the beginning, or selling stuff to way back in the beginning. Now he's going back to this guy, and Brent Ashworth is like, yeah, I don't know, this guy's kind of being shady. Like, now he's selling stuff for a lot cheaper than he should be to me. Like, I'm not sure this is this is this is right. And then Hoffman's also trying to buy a house, like a half million dollar home. Yeah. In 1985, 1986 time frame, he's trying to buy this half million dollar home in Cottonwood Heights for five hundred and fifty thousand dollars. He pays a $5,000 earnest money, supposed to have 195000 at closing. Uh, the next month, his check for 185000 
bounces to the first interstate bank. This is where things start going ugly. Yeah, and then now his stuff's starting to just, you know, go to hell because no one buys the Oath of Freeman stuff from him. Um, He is, now his stuff's all starting to fall apart. You know, he's using papyrus as collateral for the $150,000 loan, and that's not really working out for him. And so it comes to a head. um, I'm trying to find it. It's funny because this 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 accounting all has all the little dates of like when he bought different things from Radio Shack. So now at Cottonwood Mall, at Cottonwood Mall, at the Radio Shack and Cotton, like they got really detailed. Like they dug way in. So this is in '85, I think, uh, in the late summer, early fall of '85. He's now he's starting to buy uh, things, presumably for the bombs that he was creating. Um, so. so- so what's what's crazy though is right before all of this goes down, like the nineteenth of October, the FBI authenticates everything. <laughs> they do not indicate forgery. <laughs> but at this point he's now like one point three million dollars in debt. Yep. Um and so then Stephen Christensen and Kathleen Sheets. So my dad said that at the time, um, it was actually Gary Sheets was being tapped by the LDS church um, just to get information, both he and um, Steve Christensen. Um, and that's when um, bad things happened. So the bomb was intended for Gary. And unfortunately, it was his wife that oh, yeah. was the victim. Well, and it's very clear, like, because the LDS church was starting to talk to these people and, and his forgeries were starting to unravel. Um, when Christensen and Kathleen sheets die now, initially in the early, the early like investigation, he wasn't even a suspect. He had made it out to look like basically Gary and Steven were in some sort of feud Right. And tried to kill each other, mm-hmm. uh, or some disgruntled worker yeah. of theirs, yeah. or something like You're like right. he he and and it wasn't until the next day <laughs> when he injures himself with a bomb in his car. Presumably, that bomb was going to Ashworth, who is really kind of the start of everything falling apart. Um, but it injures him in his car, and immediately all suspicion goes right. Didn't to, that happen to him. downtown Salt Lake? Yeah, up mm-hmm. in the avenues. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and so that's when police are like, Ish. oh, here's a dude with a bomb in his car. <laughs> um, maybe he has to do with these other two people because he's involved with them. Uh, and so then they go in and they get a warrant for his house. And what gets him very first thing is he's got a machine gun. That's what they get him on to begin with. Yep. Because they get a warrant and they 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 get him with the illegal possession of a machine gun. However, he pays his own $50,000 bail. But they're right there, and they get him again. <laughs> because he fucking sells it. He sells a fake letter at an auction, like right afterwards. It's a Daniel Boone letter. Yeah, that's it's it was going on at the exact same time. Yeah. Well, and then here's where it gets even crazier. So they take a polygraph test, and he passes. Of course he does. He's a fucking con man. This is what he does for a living. That's why polygraph tests aren't really admissible, because they're beatable. Uh, yeah, so... In eighty in the in eighty six he eventually does get uh convicted, right? And in eighty six I think it's in eighty six Yeah, eighty six the FBI comes back and says that uh they determined that the Harris letter was not a forgery yet again. 
<laughs> oh no no it wasn't an 86 so in 86 all the stuff's coming back and they're like nope all the stuff's still legit he's the court trial's kind of starting to happen uh, and eventually they they start to realize his stuff's a fake yeah so at this point it's just the bombs that's all they're looking at they don't they're not seeing this whole big picture yeah and as they get into investigating when they get into his house what really tips them off that the forgeries exist are the plates. The plates. <laughs> they find all the forgery yeah. equipment in his house, basically, his where basement. he's been making these fucking fake, like, Deseret notes and the Jim Bridger notes and, and the stuff. the Freeman thing. Yeah, and like, they're seeing all of these plates from these stamps that he has created this shit with. And so... So now they're like on to his forgery, but they can't really prove it. And and like you said, because all these agencies have said, yeah, this is legit. These are legit things. And heaven forbid you go back and, and be wrong. So eventually they finally start to uncover and they find people that are saying, yes, these are forgeries. Here's how we know. Like one of them was the ink that was used is not the same kind of ink that was back then. When you look at it under a microscope, the way it cracks is different than the ink that was used back then would have cracked. And they get him to do a plea plea bargain in in early 87, like in January of 87. And basically... He pleads down. Uh, he he pleads two guilt, two counts of second degree murder, um, uh, and a whole bunch of fraud, uh, communication fraud, and and fraudulent document shit. And it was like twenty six counts or twenty eight counts or something. So let's see. So uh, upon examining him, over six hundred and eighty eight documents that came through his office or through him were examined. Of those, three. Let's see, 688 went through him, 302 were examined, 61 of them were believed to have been forged. And, and that was part of the plea deal, is he had to yeah. then admit openly in court which documents were fake and which were real, because he had such a mix. Think about this timeline, though. It's like a 10-year time period that he's really producing these documents. That's a lot. Well, He's a busy all the time. I mean, I know he had associates, but that's that's pretty crazy. And so, I mean, it's all crazy, but that is the that number alone is incredible. And so, through all this time, up to this point, the Mormon Church has been saying all these documents are legit, Talking. these things are real. And then he amount he announces publicly, yeah, this was all fake. I've I've done this. I was that part of his plea deal? Was to yeah. come out and yeah. say, hey, it, it was. I lied. In, in the plea deal, he had to. It openly in court under oath testify to all the different things that he'd produced that were and there's forgeries. a lot of people that st- that are still convinced he lied about that he still didn't disclose everything they still feel like there's more that he didn't in the aftermath of all that conveniently the deseret book company which is basically the lds's book company decides to close its fine and rare book department <laughs> that had been buying all this shit from him uh and but now so essentially hoffman at this point has accomplished his goal like a lot of what he said he set out to do was discredit the mormon church because he was disillusioned with them when he was a kid so he spends like basically 10 plus years creating documents and creating a scenario where the lds church says all these things happen have to turn around and be like oh sorry. and now they've got to come back out and be like well yeah the salamander okay the salamander document like that no nah, we were we're we're dumb. Just kidding. Like how do how do you come back from that? Well, so that that's that's one of the big arguments, and that's why one of these articles, uh, the man who fooled God, not to not to go down this road 
but that one would say you just turned with your blinker on. <laughs> if you are supposedly called of God and you are supposedly a seer and a revelator, how did you not see these fake documents? And not only that, you incorporated them into your own history. You took the whole thing hook, line, and sinker. Maybe had their own glasses on. Maybe <laughs> they, they, they were the wrong Jesus glasses. Yeah, and so and like the LDS Church started doing other stuff. Like they they filed suit against Wade Lillywhite, who had uh, said that you know basically the books they were accusing him of defrauding the bookstore of money because he was saying these things were real and they weren't. Um, but he actually he actually got sentenced to ten years in prison as well uh, because he was stealing rare books uh, from their from their collection basically. Um, so one of the one of the final interviews, well, he's still alive, so that could still be more. Well, and he did try to kill himself in 88. He did. He did. So one of the interviews in the first part of 88, um, it was a seven-hour interview. Hoffman claims to have forged documents with at least 83 different signatures. Mm-hmm. And then one asked when he felt about the people he murdered, and this is his direct quote. He said, I don't feel anything for them. My philosophy is they're dead. They're not suffering. I think life is basically worthless. They could have just died as easily in a car accident. I don't believe in God. I don't believe in the afterlife. They don't know they're dead. So, like, no remorse. Oh, no. Whatsoever. He's totally callous, and, and I think he was so disillusioned that he just didn't give a shit anymore. I wonder how he feels now. I don't know. Has he been interviewed any time in the last 10 years? Uh, There was an article about him that said 30 years later, but nothing in the article talked about an interview with him. Yeah, I mean, he's just going to live out his life in prison. Yeah. There's just life in prison with no possibility of parole. Well, it was because of that statement and then the statement. I'm just saying, some people find God in jail, so I'm just wondering if he had a change of heart. That statement and then the statement he made to to the parole board about when he committed those murders he didn't care who died it could have been anybody could have been a dog yeah could have been a kid he didn't care well think about if he had that machine gun sitting at his house like what other thoughts could have been in his mind if he decided to pull that out and you know take a take a bigger because he didn't he it was delivered as a package to um yeah and kathleen i, I, I think believe, that if i remember correctly i think that he was trying to send a message if you will uh and i think that he didn't really care who got hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that. I believe that. And I don't know how much further he would have went had he not blown himself up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how many more people would he have killed? Because think about guys like like uh, uh, the Unabomber, Timoth- Timothy McVeigh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know. All he had to do is put a church office building. Yeah. and I, But I don't know that but that wasn't, it didn't seem like that was his target, right? Like his target were the people that were were onto him onto him and trying to turn him in so he's still trying to protect this crazy lie that he had going so i mentioned it earlier but when i was reading through this timeline all i could think was speaking of the social media stuff today like how bonkers would social media be if something like this had broke out right now i mean well, yeah, like in the 80s, like... That's all I could think of was like, that you, would you just be... You catch some national news maybe once or twice over the course of a year about this guy, but the reality is if you're not LDS and living in basically Utah or in a community that's heavily LDS, you're not reading news about what's going on here, but the church is making these absurd proclamations about these documents. And think about how quickly people turn now. I mean, 
the church would be. Yeah. It would be bad. I, I still well, blown away at how quickly all those documents were okay. In today's day and age, though, someone would come forth with a, a document like this and say it's real. You have so much knowledge at your fingertips that I don't think it would take very long to debunk it. I don't think. I could be wrong. Well, the technology is a lot better, too, so it's a lot harder to make those kind of forgeries right, because, right. you know, what we had in 1980 is much different than what we had well, in Well, now they have carbon dating amongst plenty of other things, but right off the bat, carbon dated. Well, first of all, is that is that even possible to be is that Is that honest? paper actually 300 years old? Yeah. Well, a lot of those those books that you that you get, if you get those rare books, they have blank pages in them, and that's what forgers use. They oh, take yeah. those blank pages out. So, I mean, it's a combination of things that made him so successful. Um, the paper, the the, the right. inks that he chose, the uh, he checked in on somebody. He asked where, if there was a record of where Joseph Smith was when he did those blessing right. papers so to make sure that he wasn't gone or something and then he was like nope there he was at home so okay well then that's the day he did the blessing it's too bad it's too bad a guy like that had to go that route because imagine what good he could do with those abilities he would have been a way better archaeologist than indiana jones way better (laughs) 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 but just imagine and his knowledge that he's never going to give up of how he did all that stuff well, even it, uh, so I came across an article that was done by a kind of a timeline, not as extensive as the BYU one is, but that the Deseret News did. And even in even in 2010, which is just nine years ago, they were still finding information. And they and one of the historians said, I think we're going to be discovering stuff that Mark Hoffman did for years to come. Oh, yeah. Well, it's OK. So it's kind of like he implicated somebody in the Mountain Meadows massacre that was not. Yeah. Well, and it's it's one of those things like uh, it's like when there's a bad judge. Right. And. They are on the bench for 20 years and you find out that they have been dirty for any amount of time during that 20 years. Now, every last thing they've ever touched comes into question uh, and, and all the cases that, that are affected by them come into question. And that's the case with this guy for 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 almost 20 years. This guy, at least 10, I guess, closer to 10 years. This guy was was forging documents left and right and involved in a ridiculous number of high-end rare book and 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 uh, right. documentation. Well, and, and he he did enough legitimate business, and he had enough legitimate things come through him that people just didn't question it at no. the time. Well, in a way, wouldn't you start to question like how is this one guy able to because because of all, all of this the, stuff. because of all the transactions he's making so that's the thing like well, so if you look at the final count he's he's trading in rare texts and rare so books constantly the final count more than 6000 documents came through his office that he and these are involved in. these aren't like day-to-day documents these are Rare dating old between seventeen ninety two and nineteen twenty nine. Um of that four hundred and forty three came from him personally. So six thousand came through his office and his group. Four hundred and forty three his associates. His associates. Four hundred and forty three came through That's what my dad called them. And of those that came through him, two hundred and sixty or sixty percent were found to be authentic. So six thousand documents came through his office. That's a lot of documents in a ten year span. 
So you were just you were just talking about him saying that like it didn't matter, like uh-huh. they could have died in a car accident. In 2011, they released a four-page letter that he had written in 1988 um, called "A Summary of My Crimes," and he and it was written to the Utah Board of uh, Pardons and Parole. And he wrote, I, I felt like I would rather take a human life or even my own life rather than to be exposed. Yeah. And so who knows how much stuff he didn't admit to that's still out there. Well, then the sad thing is how much of that stuff really maybe truly is legitimate. Yeah. And we'll never really know because he doesn't want like even the stuff that he admitted. You have to question, well, was all that really fake? Because if he was smart and by all accounts, he was a very smart guy. He would have said some of the stuff that was real was forgery to throw everyone off the track of what was real and what wasn't real. Right. Well, in some of them, the Harrison document is still to this day under debate as to whether or not it's authentic. What's not under debate uh, as to whether or not it's authentic is this podcast. (laughs) We're the real deal. (laughs) (laughs) And if you like what you hear, please share. Um, uh, you can find us on Twitter and on the Instagrams at TNU podcast, and you can find us on Facebook at the new Utah podcast. We also have a website, the new Utah.com. And, and now Jess is going to have to find some pretty fucking badass coffee shops, including badass coffee, probably. Cause that's They're still actually exists. pretty awesome. I like that coffee shop uh, around too. the state of Utah. Thanks again to our guest, uh, uh, Saida. I have it phonetically. I phonetically wrote it down too. Huge letters. Saida is is a a very well-spoken young lady, and I think she's going to do some some marvelous things uh, at UC Berkeley. She's going to help change the world. uh, I sure hope so. I sure hope so. They Uh, say that women are going to change the world. No pressure, but... She's already on her No, way. lots of pressure. Fucking do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, uh, that's going to do it for the night. Um, hopefully you'll join us next week. Uh, again, please, 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 please share. And you know what? I, I want to throw a shout out because we don't do this every every time on the air. I always do it in the notes. But uh, Folk Hogan uh, makes the intro and outro music for us. Um, they are an amazing local band. And if you haven't heard them, go download their shit. Um, they're really great um, Irish folk. Irish punk, Irish nothing. Punk, yeah. More punky. Folk punk. Folky yeah. punk. It's really good stuff. Uh, or Nick Passy. You can go check out Nick Passy's solo stuff, which is fantastic. Because he's basically playing like every day of the week. Yeah, the dude, at last time I saw him, he was like in between three shows in one day. So um, he's, a, he's a great guy. Uh, also, he makes buttons. If you want a button. Uh, button, button. He's got pins. buttons. Uh, and he's always doing awesome pins. specials. He'll help you with any kind of merchandising that you need. Yeah, he's a really good dude. Uh, and and they're great. So thanks thanks to them for that music. Um, but that's going to do it. Uh, be active. Be open. Let it and, ride. And uh, don't buy forged documents. <laughs>